Opportunities for Australia in space. And it, it's important that we keep sending things into space and, and sometimes these events will happen, but it's important that we mitigate that risk by collecting as much information we can and then being able to act. Climate change and food security. Increasing numbers of households, one million Australian um, are not having sufficient funds or access to food to be able to meet their daily requirements. It's a shocking statistic. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Governments and industry are constantly innovating in the space domain, but as space becomes increasingly contested and congested, there is a need to ensure the domain remains secure, something that will be central to discussions at ASPE Sydney Dialogue in April. Beck Shrimpton speaks to co-founder and CEO of HERE Robotics, Dr Will Crow, about the opportunities in space and the potential for Australia in the global space economy. Hello and welcome to the ASPE podcast, Will Crow. How are you, Will? I'm really great. Thanks for having me today, Beck. Not a problem at all. I've actually wanted to get you on this podcast for quite a while, so it's, uh, it's great for us. Now, um, I'd actually really like to start our conversation today with you, of course, now leading a highly successful, truly innovative space startup, proudly Australian, but receiving enormous success and traction and recognition overseas. Your work has hit the news several times and we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, can you tell us a little bit about you and where your interest in space came from? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, Dr. William Crow, um, I did a my undergrad in aerospace engineering. I've always loved space um, ever since I was 12. I watched Star Wars. And so that was kind of my track <laughs> ever since seeing that movie. Did undergrad in space, as I said, but then I think there was a bit of a, a gap. So I went into just normal engineering after finishing that course um, in, in train engineering. Thought there was really no future in that in Australia and was happily... I guess, surprised, but also interested in entrepreneurs that I saw after I graduated doing really interesting things in space. And I thought, why not uh, do that? But also why not do that in Australia as well? So took that journey and the way or my first steps were actually into doing a, a PhD and starting some research into asteroid mining in particular. I thought that was one of the, the key steps on the way to a, a truly space-based economy. And Went through with that. Originally thought I'd be helping startups in their journey, uh, but then got fed up with, I guess, a, a lack of action that I perceived. And so started a, a company with my co-founder after that, just before the, the end of my PhD, which I wouldn't recommend to, to start a company as well as doing a PhD to anyone, but that's what we did. And here we are today and, and starting to make success, as you said. That's a, it's a really interesting story. Lots of twists and turns. I love, I always find professional stories that, that, um, that don't take a direct line to be far more interesting and frankly, encouraging. There are lots of younger people now increasingly interested in, uh, in STEM and in space, although of course you don't have to be uh, a technical person or a science person to get into space, of course. So you've talked about the path that, that you took, you know, academia, industry, and then wanting to, entre- you know, use that entrepreneurial spirit and, and, and build that and, and create that in Australia. But can we get that now back to why you actually established HEO Robotics? What made you focus on mm. the particular company that you did build? How did you know you were onto something? 
with your technology and with your idea and how did you actually go about creating not only the company but what I think is really interesting about what you've done is you've created a culture as well. So can you talk about those things for me a little? So at Hero Robotics, we help governments and space companies to visually monitor objects in space. And the way that we do that is a little bit different. So we apply our software to cameras that are already in space, um, typically on Earth observation satellites. And we use our software to turn the cameras around as they pass space objects that we care about and we want to image. Um, and we snap a photo as we fly past, but really, really fast. Um, and then we uh, take that data and then we apply our analytics and we're able to tell things about those objects that a lot of other people can't, sometimes even the owners. So things like identifying what the object is or being able to verify that it's done something that it was meant to do, or really just trying to understand if, if it's just a, a plain old piece of space debris or if it's actually an active uh, satellite with nefarious uh, purposes at heart. So that's what we do it here. Um, we actually started as an asteroid mining company. So we took the, the problem space or the solution space um, from asteroid uh, reconnaissance missions. So the idea is that a lot of scientific asteroid missions, you fly past the asteroid and you capture data as you fly past. And it really allows you to get really close to uh, a lot of asteroids, which are dynamically difficult to get to um, in space. But it turns out that same problem set is also true in orbit. And in order, order to get really detailed information of space objects, but do that at a low cost, it really makes sense to fly past objects and take images rather than what we call rendezvous with them and get really up and close and personal and take images like that. So what we do really makes sense to get a lot of data about a lot of objects, which is really important as the number of objects is absolutely exponentiating. Yeah, yeah. You are, what you do is, is so cool, Will. It always gets me excited talking to you about this. I can't help but ask, given we're in the uh, the, the several weeks and the grips of, of Balloon Gate, um, <laughs> how close do you be? Your cameras go on all angles. Can, is your capability one of the things that could actually pick up a balloon? We, we've been asked about this a lot. So, I mean, the answer is it could, but I think, I think, um, yeah, there's probably some other great technologies out there that could be used that are, with cameras that are closer as well. So actually, I think I've seen some really great drone, drone imagery of some of those balloons, and I think that's the way to go. But yeah, it really makes sense. I think taking that example, though, it really makes sense to have drones in this case that can get close to these objects and really get good images, particularly from a different viewpoint. So you might want to look uh, above or from the side, not just from underneath. Um, for that particular case. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's so unique about what you do, right, is the, your, your ability to, to not only get the, get the images themselves and at enormous speeds and at, you know, distances that are close but not requiring those, those rendezvous operations, which can be sensitive, of course, but you've got your analytics piece as, as well that really, that really produces the, um, you know, the value add that, that HEO Robotics is. It's, uh, it's super exciting. To that, actually, you, you did hit the news in November last year um, for snapping and posting images of that first stage of the Long March 5B, a Chinese rocket that was descending uncontrolled, I think, out of space. A huge piece of, of space debris, right, Will? There was a lot of nervousness about where this was going to land exactly. I don't think there was the clarity, certainly not publicly, about where this was going to come down. And Australia, of course, itself had a brush with uh, with space debris falling on some farmland, a, a bit of SpaceX debris 
so look these are real life you know use cases for your technology can you can you talk about how what you do fits into to these particular problems um, mm. and how you can help manage space much more safely yeah definitely so um yeah as you said with the long march 5b it was really difficult to understand where it would land uh, i think more than 70 percent of the earth's surface was a central landing site at one point and it's it's really difficult to project predict where these objects will land if they're uncontrolled so i guess step one is to start pro providing this evidence by taking images and saying hey this is a real problem and we should look to mitigate it and make them controlled landings but more importantly, if they're uncontrolled, either because they're designed that way or if the, the control systems aren't working effectively, it's really important to take these images. So um, ESA also took a lot of measurements of this same rocket body and, and uh, were able to capture a rotation rate. We took a rotation rate measurement um, several hours, I think, after that, that happened, and the rotation rate had actually increased by 20%. Um, and that's important because that tells us how much uh, kind of air it's going to collide with on the way down, and that can help us constrain exactly where it's going to land. So it's really critical that we make we continue to make these estimates of landing up until the landing itself. So we can, in the worst case, we can uh, move people away from the potential impact zone um, if that occurs. And it, it's important that we keep sending things into space, and, and sometimes these events will happen, but it's important that we mitigate that risk by collecting as much information we can and then being able to act accordingly. Now, really interesting that you you pointed out the, the SpaceX debris incident. So a piece of debris fell down last year onto Australian farmland. This debris was meant to burn up in the atmosphere, so it wasn't actually meant to hit the ground um, in any large chunk. But a 30 kilogram chunk did hit the ground and it didn't just hit the ground, it didn't just, uh, I guess, dully thud into the ground, it really jackknifed um, into the ground. Fortunately, only some uh, some grass was hurt, potentially only shaved some grass, but um, I think what most people don't know is that it jackknifed into the ground just 300 meters away from where that farmer's house was, where he was sleeping that night. Um, so things could have happened really differently and we do know that there are lots of stories in the past when um, pieces of meteorites, fortunately no debris from uh, human-made objects till now, but meteorites have hit humans in the past and, and seriously hurt them and damaged property. And we want to make sure that doesn't happen with space debris as well. So it's, again, really important that we collect that information and then we're able to make decisions um, and, and public safety decisions based on those. Yeah, that's that's um, that's brilliant. No, I certainly didn't realise it was that close to um, to actually yeah. potentially hitting a human and, and taking life. That is that's frightening. I do love though, and I think it's important to recognise that you know you said there it's important to keep sending things into space. I think people can have that knee jerk reaction of well, you know, safe's not space. We've we've got to not safe rather. We've got to mm -hmm. stop. We've got to stop putting so much stuff up there. It's actually not not the answer you know it's such an important economy and i do want to talk to you about that as well but um but there are you know increasingly ways to to more manageably uh control i guess what's in space and to increase safety not only safety but the sustainability of of that environment as well in terms of in terms of debris and in, in some cases i guess you have to put things up in order to affect debris removal itself. Uh, some of the newer technologies require things going up to, to take it down. 
The other thing I really loved in your your comment just then was you pointed to how Issa had some images, you had some images. You know, it's putting the pieces of puzzles together, isn't it, and collaborating and information sharing or at least being able to, you know, to understand the broader picture is really an important part of space and collaboration. Um, it's almost like in the DNA of anyone who works in space in, in, my, in my experience. So... Um, can I ask you, you, you really interested me as well as, a, as an individual that you saw the potential in astro mining so early. I'm super interested. Maybe you and I have to get together and do some thinking and writing about this, Will. But, um, you know, Australia's potential in and for and to pivot capabilities that we have, particularly in our mining sector, puts us in a really great position, I think, to, uh, to be at the forefront of, of developments of, of astro mining. But in a taking a broader sense, you know, you're an important success story in Australian space. What is your role on, on where Australia should be? How ambitious should we be? And what kind of role should we be looking or place should we be looking to take in the global space economy? Yeah, I think um, that's the age old question. Everyone has their own point of view. But one thing that I really love, so the, the space agency put forward six different areas in which we could concentrate um, and, and I think a lot of them were very general and kind of go to Australia's needs. So things like earth observation, really important industry to Australia, but most Australians don't know that we use data from space in order to affect change on the ground. There's a bunch of other great stuff as well, like positioning technology, also really important to Australia. But the one that I love the most is leapfrog technology, um, which I think was incredibly important for um, the Australian government to put in the report. I think um, actualizing what that actually means is really difficult because a lot of people will put their hand up and say, hey, I'm doing leapfrog technology. Um, but I think a lot of the time um, it's it's a copy of what's happening overseas or there's a lot of convergent thinking um, in the industry. So when when I think of leapfrog technology, I think of contrarian kind of technology. And it's a weird space because... I think even though the government wants to support these kinds of leapfrog, leapfrog technologies and technologies that most people don't think of yet, and most people might even think are wrong, but are in fact right, it's really it's really challenging. And it's almost like there needs to be, a, I guess, foster a, I guess, an atmosphere of acceptance. I'm not sure, but it, it's kind of like traditionally the government likes to help companies by giving out grants. Um, and I think maybe for leapfrog technologies, these are one of those areas where Australia as a government might not be able to do that. And maybe it's something else like just saying, you know what, we're going to have a conversation. We maybe money isn't isn't the way that we can help companies do things that are truly leapfrog. And yeah, I, th I think we feel that pain at Hero Robotics. We've accepted that we aren't very good at getting grants. And one of those reasons is that the technology that we've created is so new and so different that it's it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around until it's actually actualized and it's in place. But what that also means is that when these technologies succeed, the whole world is the customer. It's not just the Australian government or, or the Australian ecosystem. You can start going out and you've got a differentiated technology and you can you can start selling that to the rest of the world. So um, in my mind, we should do more of that, but it's it's really challenging to support that. No, you're right. And you, and you point to an issue that, that I think is a challenge in, in sort of technology more broadly, um, 
is is tech literacy, understanding these technologies and their impacts and their potential, um, what they could do for the economy, what they can do for our society. Uh, you've given me a, a really nice segue into what's kind of my my last question, I think, for you. But you know, you you have just said Australia as a government might not be able to both because we just don't really have that depth of understanding and expertise in government. We don't necessarily have the money. In my view, that doesn't mean you can't find it or connect to others in the global system to you know to bring that money. But um, you know, what do you think are either the big decisions or investments that are necessary? for our space sector to take its place as a major player in the global space economy. And what's the mix that you think we need here? It can't be all government, it can't be all private. Government and private partnerships are, are fairly mature and clunky. What does it look like to actually make something happen and be needle moving rather than the, uh, the incrementalism that I fear is becoming very much a part of the sort of culture of our thinking in this country about the space sector? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a really hard problem, Beck. Which is, yeah, I think why why you and and myself as well, and and I think a lot of people are trying to grapple with this and understand how to go forward. I think there have been some good ideas put out there. So one I like is no grants but contracts. So I think that's really a way to build economy. And I think one example where I've seen this work is actually where um, the Air Force, before there was a Space Command, actually. Um, worked with UNSW Canberra to build out a, a space program. So I think a lot of people, including myself, were like, well, why, why are you giving UNSW Canberra this money? And, you know, I think a few people would like to see that. But I do, I do see that a lot of great things happen out of that. A lot of really great companies, a lot of really great technologies. So companies like Skycraft and others have come out of that program. And what it did was it just allowed a bunch of people to, I guess, or a critical mass to get into one place um, and really work hard. So I think that was a great way where a contract beat a grant. Um, and I thought that was really awesome. I think other areas are really challenging, but it, it's probably about accumulating more of that critical mass. So I think Adelaide's been a place where um, there's been a lot of attention and attempt to produce that kind of criticality. I think that's probably also true in Canberra. We're here robotics, where, where we find our strength is actually in the software industry. So it's it's a little bit weird for a lot of, for space companies to be located in, in Sydney, in Australia, but actually we think this is the best place for us to be as a company. And it's about finding those interesting niches and, and getting, getting that critical mass of people to align and work on that same problem. So just two ideas there. Um, and I, I think... I think there are probably a lot more out there and it's a really intractable problem. But uh, yeah, it's, it's one that we should all keep thinking about and try and solve. I look, thank you so much for your comments there. Of course, informed and uh, and come from a lot of experience. So I really respect them. The, the contracts over grants, um, you know, refrain is, you know, it's common from, from industry. And I, I think, you know, really we need to, we need to do more than acknowledge that they're saying, that, you know, industry is saying that to government, government has to kind of find a way to, to respond. Your model that you point to where you get a bunch of really smart people in a room, they can be academics, industry people and, and you know, huddle around a problem and that's a that's a contract. You know, that's it's not that bold a move really and it does, it does get results. I mean, I think it's that frightening. We can do this. 
Um, so uh, so thank you for, for sharing those thoughts. I, I do hope you and I and, and others can continue to, to work together and, and come up with helpful and imaginative ways for, for us to, um, for the industry and for government and civil society and academia to all come together and, and, and really realise Australian potential here. The other thing, of course, that you touched on there is the nexus between a whole range of advanced technologies and space technologies or the space environment. Um, so a lot of people think rockets and think satellites and things like that, but they don't think our software and, and AI and, and some of the analytics and things that, that you're doing. Look, Will, it's always uh, magnificent to speak to you. I look forward to welcoming you in Sydney to the Sydney Dialogue. This is shaping up to be a really momentous and a, uh, event and a first for Australia. Uh, as we've touched on, I think, on a number of issues uh, through our conversation, these, uh, these challenges and these problems can't be solved by government or by industry or by civil society alone. So the idea of the, of the dialogue is to bust down some of these silos and enable far more productive conversations about collaboration and innovation and investment. So um, I really look forward to, to seeing you there, if not before. And I thank you so much for your time and a great chat today. Thank you, Will. No, thank you so much again for having me. How is climate change affecting food security in Australia and across the globe? Dr. Robert Glasser speaks to Robin Alders about food security, what it is, why it matters, and how Australia can work with international partners towards achieving global food security. So Robin, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Really looking forward to discussing food security with you. Thanks. I'm so pleased that ASPE is interested and recognises the importance of food security. Well, hope we recognise it and I suspect Australia as a whole will be recognising it much and more, much more frequently and uh, in the future. So, but maybe we could start by just defining what food security is. It sounds a bit like military defence and, and farming and it's... And, and everything in between. Yeah, yeah, and it's a bit of both really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to reveal my age and to say that when I first started out, food security really was simply about filling empty stomachs. So making sure there's access to things like maize, wheat or rice in order to stop your stomach grumbling. These days, there's much more recognition of the importance of having a nutritious diet. So what I might just do is share with you the, the um, United Nations current definition of food yeah, security that links food with nutrition. So it is food and nutrition security exists when all people at all times have physical, social and economic access to food of sufficient quantity and quality in terms of variety, diversity, nutrient content and safety to meet their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. Sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds wonderful. And I guess one of the questions were examining today and we'll be discussing today is the impact climate change is likely to have on food security. Can you maybe describe for us some of the ways in which a warming climate and everything that uh, follows from that, how that undermines food security? So what is the connection between climate change and food security or food insecurity, I guess? I guess when we stop and think about food, we automatically understand that weather is a really key thing. If you don't have good weather conditions, particularly under rain-fed agriculture, it's really difficult to produce your food and difficult to get it around, as we're discovering right now. But the thing that 
possibly we need to stop and think about is that even if we didn't have climate change, we actually have a food and nutrition security problem in Australia and mm. in the region. So taking climate change out of the equation, for instance, in countries such as Timor-Leste and Papua New Guinea, our very near neighbours, one in two children are stunted. This is a shocking statistic at the global level. And what it means is that this, these 50% of children will never reach their genetic potential. Not only are they not going to grow as tall as they should, but their uh, intellectual ability won't develop, their physical ability won't develop, and statistics suggest that economically they're going to be disadvantaged for their entire life and that that will disadvantage their family. And here in Australia, where we love to talk about being a food secure nation, possibly at the national level, yes, we might be. But as we're seeing now with rising food prices, partially climate change associated, partially associated with those, this uh, e uh, energy crisis, increasing numbers of households, one million Australian um, are not having sufficient funds or access to food to be able to meet their daily requirements. It's a shocking, it's a shocking statistic. Yep. And amongst adults, 60% of us are either obese or overweight. And often that's combined with being deficient in key um, micronutrients uh, such as minerals and, and vitamins, meaning our health is also compromised. So that, uh, for instance, during the COVID-19 pandemic, people who are overweight and obese were much more predisposed to getting se severe um, infection from COVID-19. Mm. So everything is interlinked. And then on top of this precarious situation, we're adding climate change. So what we know, if we don't get rain or if we get too much rain, our agricultural systems are in trouble. Our ability to plant, to harvest and to move our produce is a problem both in Australia, as we're seeing, we're just seeing today that in um, northwestern Western Australia, in Derby, they've been cut off by floodwaters and their supplies are coming in either by plane or by barge. But who's doing that and, and what are they not doing when they're doing these supply runs? So yep. very complex and the increasing frequency is a problem that both the system, the, the environmental ecosystems that support agriculture and all of the allied systems are having less time to cope as these extreme weather events, be it flood, fire, cyclones, they're happening more frequently. So things are not having that time to regenerate as they used to. Yeah, and I, if Australia is having these problems, imagine countries in our region that are less developed countries that have weak governance communities located in very remote places that are virtually unreachable, very few government services reaching them, and simultaneous climate impacts, as you say, because I guess one of the lessons we've learned about the climate is that it isn't one hazard hitting at a time after a year gap in between. The whole system is changing as the climate warms. Absolutely. Compounding and cascading disasters is really a problem. Once again, in Papua New Guinea, drought, they're seeing drought in areas they've never seen it before. And just as here in Australia, farmers can't predict when their rain is coming. What used to be a very predictable, you know, wet and dry season, people can't pick anymore. So how do you know when to plant when you've saved those precious seeds that you want to plant for your next planting season? How do you know when to plant if you're not sure that if the rain starts now, 
that it's going to continue. So these are serious issues, um, both for supply of fertiliser and for some of our Pacific Island nations and countries such as the Philippines with the the devastation of these huge cyclones that we're seeing. It takes a long time to recover. But interestingly, in some of our region, they are maybe slightly more resilient than we are Mm. here in Australia. And that seems an odd thing to say. But in communities that still produce much of their own food, where they have their own gardens and they are relatively self-sufficient, if they get isolated, they're able to cope for a while. But as we see in Australia, where over the past 50 years, We've gone from, you know, having farmers that would produce their food plus have their own vegetable garden, things like that. Farmers don't have time for these side activities anymore. So they may be producing food, but a lot of what they put on their table, they're actually buying from the supermarket. So they're producing food, it gets shipped off to some urban hub and then has to come back again. And when those supply lines get broken, then you see how quickly food disappears off the shelves. Actually, in rural Australia, I've spent a bit of time in Queensland, for example, and the old-timers, the farmers who've been there forever, uh, complain about the new arrivals who have no experience dealing with droughts or floods and who are very high risk as a result. So even in Australia, yes, the same dynamic. But let let me move out now to the global food system and ask you a question about how climate disruptions might affect the global food system and how, if it is shaken by, say, simultaneous climate impacts on different bread baskets, what impact that might have in our region? Is it, is it just that the safety net of being able to purchase food if my own country's crops have failed isn't there anymore? How, can you talk a bit about that? It's, it's a really good question, and we're having trial runs on this already, either from um, severe weather events or instability, as we've seen with what's happening in Ukraine and the importance of the wheat that they produce going out to a number of food uh, deficit countries. So in theory, there are um, storage plans, both through the United Nations and regional economic communities have been working to try and get plans. And in this particular case, I have to say ASEAN is a bit of a star because they learnt from the more, you know, a decade or so ago financial crisis. And they have now set up reserves of rice and and agreements between countries so that when we had the problem with COVID-19, they did not see rice shortages. So it can be done, but for how long? You know, the question is, how long will those supplies last? And, And it is only rice. So people need much more than rice in order to survive. And I think... Um, both in terms of harvest and transport. I think, quietly, people are really worried. And even with these shocks of um, the instability in supply of key commodities, such as wheat, maize, rice, the COVID-19, which has had an impact on labour and supply line fragility, what we've seen that since 2019, the number of people at a global level that are food insecure has actually more than doubled. So right now, as of July last year, there are 345 million people in 82 countries who have acute food insecurity. I mean, these are numbers we thought we'd got through this, but unfortunately, we're walking backwards. 
I remember, I believe it was the 1998 El Nino, and the climate science suggests that El Ninos and La Ninos will become more frequent and more severe, was the year Indonesia had a major food security crisis and purchased what I think at that time was the largest purchase of rice on the international market as a way of dealing with this as, an, as a, a risk treatment, basically. And so, yes, I can imagine if you have all of these things happening simultaneously, if ASEAN and others haven't made proper, prepared properly for this, that there won't be an option to buy because all the supplies will have been bought up either by countries worrying about their own populations or because it, of climate damage. Absolutely, indeed. And over the last two decades, it's become even more complicated because these commodities, it's not just about feeding people, but we now have uh, animal uh, industries such as the pig industry, the chicken industry, and and uh, some some uh, types of aquaculture that are actually directly competing with people for those same grain products, and so what you see, for instance, where we had the um, the food crisis in you know the the mid two thousands, and maize prices went up. So what that does is, um, for farmers that are dependent on these grains to feed their chickens, margins are already pretty um, narrow. So if the grain price goes up, the cost of feeding your animals goes up, what do you give up? And what they give up in many cases is good biosecurity. And so you see these linkages moving from a food crisis to then we had avian influenza subtype H5N1. Actually, we have the largest outbreak ever recorded of Ab H5N1 right now in the UK and the US. Absolutely, yeah. linked to the commercial yeah. chicken industry and in countries where food insecurity is already real, where farmers have narrow margins and they're very sensitive to price hikes, yeah, disease control isn't the immediate option. You've got to feed your birds first and then worry about disease. So cascading, compounding disasters. So let me ask you an unfair question which is we imagine a future 10, 15 years from now where climate now has reached, uh, warming has reached, say, two, 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 a little over two degrees or probably one and a half to two degrees. Um, we have these simultaneous impacts and the, the compound and cascade effects you've described. If that's the future, and maybe it's slightly, I don't know whether that's realistic or pessimistic. For me, it seems realistic. What are the hierarchy of interventions that we should be taking, making now to address that? What's sort of at the top of your list of what, Austra and Australia is not a global power, but we're a significant medium power. We um, are, absolutely. So what could, what's your hierarchy of both in terms of domestically and in terms of supporting the region? So clearly um, there are things we need to do right now. And there are also things that are going to take a couple of years to get into place. In the regions, supporting those monitoring systems that are looking at um, food and feed prices so that um, both households and nations can prepare and have early warning if crises are coming. I think one of the most important things that Australia can do, in addition to increasing our international assistance to the region and being seen as consistent partners where we're there, we're not going anywhere, and we're also learning as we go along. The important thing with work here in Australia and in the region, particularly when it comes to agriculture, is you're always learning every day. And I think we def desperately need a systems approach. Um, agriculture, health, education, 
transport, defence, everybody should be talking. And it would be great for Australia to model best practice. So at this point in time, as far as I know, the current agriculture white paper in Australia does not mention nutrition at all. And yet, why do we produce food if it's not to nourish people? If we look at our national dietary guidelines, it's written based on global information without really recognising Australia's unique characteristics in terms of environment, competitive advantages, and how you can nourish people if, for instance, your borders are closed. Because while we love to think we produce a lot of food, we export a lot of what we produce and we import food. So it is really important to have that discussion about what does food security look like at the national level, at the household level, absolutely, and within within our region because we, if our region uh, is not uh, well-nourished, none of us will come off looking good. Absolutely. And in fact, this is one of the issues we're deeply concerned about here at the centre, the links between things like food insecurity, not just humanitarian disasters, but large-scale movement of people who need food and the links to instability, political instability. Countries in our region have a history of instability linked to high food prices. So yes, their problems will very quickly become our problems and our peaceful region will be far less peaceful unless we do some of the things you've been describing. So Robin, thank you very much for being with us today. really appreciate your insights on this really critical topic. Thanks so much. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.